1: Welcome everyone to the On Poly podcast. I'm Steve Pagan. And I'm John Michael McGrath. Today on the pod, Ontario's capital city has a new mayor.
0: We'll take a deep dive into the election of Olivia Chow, as Toronto's 66th mayor. We've got mail and we'll spend a good chunk of time responding to your letters and emails. And someone out there is going to get a copy of Steve's new book on former Prime Minister John Turner. We'll do a draw at the end of the show to find out who won, so stick around. It's Tuesday, June 27th, 2023, so let's get to it.
1: JMM, this is our last podcast of this broadcast season. We're going to take a bit of a summer break, so we are going to spend more time than normal answering questions and comments from listeners on this podcast. But first.
0: Thank you, Toronto! Thank you, everyone. (laughs) Wow, what a night!
1: If you ever doubted what's
0: possible together, if you you ever questioned your faith in a better future, and what we can do with each other, for each other, tonight is your answer.
1: Ontario's capital city has a new mayor, and it's Olivia Chow. She captured 37% of the total votes cast, which I suspect I don't have to tell anyone, is the lowest percentage a winning candidate has ever garnered in the amalgamated city. That goes back to 1997. In fact, it's the lowest total in my lifetime. Having said that, when she first ran for mayor in 2014, she only took 23% of the
0: votes. So this is clearly a better night for her. And her victory, JMM, is historic in many ways. That's right. She's the first female mayor of the mega city again, since 1997. The old city of Toronto had had two female mayors, June Rollins and Barbara Hall. Uh, they were previously elected, uh, but that was under the, the old system before the megacity uh, and did not include the inner suburbs of Etobicoke, North York, Scarborough, etc. Uh, she's also the uh, first candidate of Asian background to win the mayoralty, in fact, the first person of color, period. Uh, actually, I mean, this is something we should, uh, you know, really highlight, the top three candidates, uh, Chow, uh, Anna Bailao, and Mark Saunders, uh, are all people of color, all immigrants. Uh, Chow was born in Hong Kong, Bailao was born in Portugal, and Mark Saunders was born in uh, London, UK, uh, of Jamaican parents. So, I mean, we have, I think, talked quite a bit in this city about how sometimes our politics don't always reflect the diversity of the city. Today's election results are reflecting that diversity, at least in part. They sure
1: do, and uh, you know, uh, people who live outside the city of Toronto may not realize this. More than half, more than half the people who live in the city of Toronto are born in another country. So this truly is an international city and the top three contenders in this mayor's race certainly reflect that. Now, if you like numbers, I'm gonna throw a a weird little quirky number your way. We got more numbers coming, but this one's truly weird and quirky. The new mayor is 66 years old, and she just became the 66th mayor of the city of Toronto. Now, here's my little quirky thing. I wonder if Mario Lemieux is her favorite hockey player. Now, did, do you get <laughs> why I just said that? I cheated, man. I had to Google it. <laughs> Come on. You looked it up. <laughs> I did. I'm I so did. disappointed. I'm so disappointed. <laughs> well, for those who are not Pittsburgh Penguin or hockey fans, of course, the great Mario used to wear number 66 himself. Now, let's do a deeper dive on perhaps some more relevant numbers here. We knew that with so many candidates in the race, there was every possibility that the winner wouldn't get close to capturing a majority of the votes. But let's compare and contrast. Chow got 37 percent of the votes. If you look back over the past 50 years of Toronto elections, that is the lowest percentage of the total vote. John Tory in 2014, that was his first victory. He got 40 percent. John Sewell in 1978 got 38%. Now, of course, that's only the old city of Toronto, not including the inner suburbs as well. You've got to go back to 1954 nearly 70 years ago to find a lower percentage victor. And that's when Nathan Phillips, yes, the guy they named the square after, Nathan Phillips won 34% of the total vote. So Chow's 37
0: is the lowest number in nearly a lifetime. Now, I mean, you mentioned John Tory uh, winning in 2014 with 40% of the vote. And I I feel like we're going to get letters about this. Nobody's saying that the the win is illegitimate, but it is a notable fact of this um, that she did not get a a huge majority uh, or even a particularly large plurality, Uh, even if you just look at the raw vote count, uh, eight months ago, John Tory won the, uh, let's say, underwhelming election uh, (laughs) victory of a pretty low turnout campaign with 342,000 votes. Eight months later, Olivia Chow has won a higher turnout uh, election with about, uh, last time we checked, it was 260,000 votes. I think that number's probably gone up. In 2014, uh, Olivia Chow came in third with 227,000 votes. Uh, so she has increased her her absolute vote count a little bit uh, versus what she got almost a decade ago. But just nobody could call this a landslide.
1: Yeah. And having said that, you know what? Uh, We got we have to give her her due. In politics, a win is a win is a win. Absolutely. And she won. There's no question she won. Uh, She won with a campaign that many, including yours truly, and I think you as well, said was an underwhelming campaign. Hardly the stuff that really motivated people to get out and vote, as the numbers today indicated. How did she do it? Well, she did it by putting together a coalition of big margins in the old city of Toronto and close victories in Scarborough, interestingly enough. Anna Bailao, who came second. Despite Doug Ford's endorsement for Mark Saunders, Bailao won every ward in Etobicoke and almost every ward in North York, two of the bigger inner suburbs. But she lost in her own former ward of Davenport. How about that? That was chow territory. She didn't
0: have the numbers in the old city. I think it's worth noting that you know Chow may be the big winner tonight, uh, but there is a big loser and a, it's the premier, it's Doug Ford. His endorsement for Mark Saunders seems to have carried basically zero weight, uh, as Saunders came in a distant third, uh, I mean he did come in third in a ballot of 102 people, so that's not nothing, uh, but a very distant third, less than 10% of the vote. Uh, John Tory's endorsement of Bailao, uh seems to have been substantially more helpful, uh, it was was not, however, enough to propel her over the top. But I mean, she did have a pretty large gap to close uh, before Tory made that endorsement. So there might be an argument that Tory's endorsement, you know, really uh, narrowed the gap much more. But honestly, I think we said this last week, the polls have been very, very noisy and it's very difficult to say really with any confidence what's going on. Although we we should point
1: out, Main Street was the only polling outfit that had Bailao consistently in second place, <laughs> yeah. whereas all the other pollsters, yeah. like four or five other agencies, yep. had Bailao well back of the pack with all the rest of the the gang. Uh, but Main Street, as it turns out, now mind you, they did most of that polling before Tory's endorsement,
0: Yes, but it turns out they're right. Well, and I spoke with somebody on a different campaign, I'm not going to identify them, and they said, you know, look, we've got to acknowledge at least the possibility that Main Street is seeing something that nobody else is, and I don't know how much credence I want to give that, but certainly with the results of tonight, you can't dismiss it entirely. Indeed. Now, traditional bases of support are usually extremely helpful to candidates in
1: their bid to become the mayor. Boy, was that not the case tonight. Josh Matlow, Mitzi Hunter, Brad Bradford, their bases basically abandoned those candidates. Matlow came third in his own St. Paul's ward. Mitzi Hunter came fourth in her own scarborough Guildwood ward. I guess I should call it a riding, the part of Toronto she used to represent when she was at Queen's Park. Bradford, Brad Bradford, well back, all over the city, including in his own Beaches East York ward. And I have to say, the MPP for Beaches East York... Uh, what do we call her? 4M. Mary uh, Margaret, Mary Margaret McMahon. McMahon. Yes, she didn't endorse Bradford, so that was uh, again somewhat
0: awkward. No, and I, I will also add just about uh, Mitzi Hunter. Uh, at some points in the night, it looked like she might come in uh, behind Chloe Brown, uh, a, a woman with uh, substantial policy weight. She's a very, very smart, very uh, energetic uh, candidate, uh, but no, no elected political experience. And Hunter left a you know a substantial political career at Queens Park to to run in this race, and uh, we haven't checked the numbers uh, yet as we're recording this, but uh, she was only about 1,000 votes ahead of Brown. So, I mean, it was notable, I will put that. And then you've got Anthony Fury, who really didn't have any um, institutional support from the conservative movement in this town, although he did have some uh, notable conservative figures, including Jordan Peterson, uh, who endorsed him, Uh, came in uh, fourth behind Uh, Saunders, but uh, well ahead of uh, Matlow, Bradford, uh, Peruzza. Uh, Shout out to Giorgio Mammoliti, who was also running in this race, and I think uh, maybe his family voted for him. (laughs) But not not much more than not, that. Not is that much what you're more than that. Now, yeah. let us um, where we want
1: to go now. Chow's victory is going to raise a lot of questions, John Michael, about why we don't have a ranked ballot system for municipal elections, and um, you know we don't have them because uh, a certain politician decided that we shouldn't. We're going to get there. And, <laughs> yeah, yeah, we, we are going to get there. I'm just
0: teasing it out for you here. Just uh,
1: tell us how the ranked ballot system works, and then tell us why
0: we don't have it. Well, so basically, voters get the chance to order their choices of candidates. It is not uh, at all unusual, even in a uh, election that doesn't have 102 candidates on the ballot, for people to think, well, I, I like so-and-so, but I like so-and-so even more. And, they, they, you know, voters, like anybody, they have choices that they want to make priorities. And so a ranked ballot system allows them to order their choices from uh, most to least preferred so that as the votes are counted, if there is nobody with more than 50% plus one of the vote, the person with the fewest votes is dropped from the results. And everyone who chose that person, they get... Get their votes allocated to their second choice, and that continues until somebody has an outright majority. It is, we should say, how basically every major political party now runs their leadership contests, uh, but for uh, hand-wavy reasons, <laughs> once they win power, uh, they all choose not to implement that method for general elections. Now, here's the key question. Is there
1: any reason to believe Olivia Chow would not have won if the ranked ballot system
0: were in place? I mean, if you look at the results right now uh, and you want to just sort of Reassign these totals mechanically. I think you could make that argument. Um, there were more candidates uh, on the right than there were on the left. Uh, basically, I would say Josh Matlow and only a few others uh, really would have plausibly added their vote totals to Olivia Chow's, whereas uh, more people and and people with more votes uh, might have added their total to Anna Bailao. So a shorter way of putting this is that you know Chow might have had less growth potential uh, and. He, he either uh, more centrist or even more conservative candidates might have had that growth potential that we are talking about. I do also just want to acknowledge the caveat that voters also act differently when the rules of a contest are different. So it's it's dangerous to make any kind of prediction uh, along those lines. True enough. But I'm getting in my time machine here and
1: I'm going back in time to a time when I recall members of Toronto City Council voted in favor of the ranked ballot system. Sure did. And yet, for some reason, it was not employed in
0: this mayoral election campaign. Why is that, John Michael? In 2020, uh, Premier uh, Doug Ford and the Progressive Conservative majority at the legislature uh, removed the ability of Ontario municipalities to use ranked ballots. Uh, there was only one major city that I know of that actually employed ranked ballots in the 2018 election. That was London, Ontario. Uh, one city councillor got elected uh, and, and really attributed her victory to uh, ranked ballots, not so much because of the votes that she got, but because Because she said she wouldn't have even gotten into the race if she didn't believe that the ranked ballot would have given her a shot and that's a whole other side of the issue that a lot of candidates don't get into the race because they don't believe the traditional system will support them and a ranked ballot makes gives them a sense of hope so that's a whole other argument but in any case The provincial government took that power away from municipalities, and Toronto is not today employing a ranked ballot system.
1: Well, which is very ironic, I think you'd have to say, because (laughs) uh, the one candidate that Doug Ford did not want to win in this election is the one who won. And that's Olivia Chow. Uh, The premier was pretty categorical in his desire not to have Chow become the mayor. If Olivia Chow gets in, it'll be unmitigated disaster. She makes David Miller look like a fiscal conservative. Now, that was during the
0: campaign. The campaign's over. How do you think things are going to roll out now? Well, we know that uh, the premier has already put out a message uh, congratulating Olivia Chow. Uh, We know that uh, the Toronto Star has reported that Labor Minister Monty McNaughton has uh, reached out to Chow to congratulate her. in case that doesn't make sense to you why the labor minister is doing that, of course, uh, the uh, historic uh, alliance uh, in the NDP with labor unions uh, means that Monty McNaughton uh, knows how to get Olivia Chow's phone number. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, what happens next? Uh, Chow will be the mayor in uh, days, not weeks. This is not going to take a very lengthy transition period. Uh, I mean, it might be a week, but it's not going to be much longer than that. Um big, big questions ahead. This is not a question of uh, Olivia Chow having huge coattails that she can bring a, a majority of new uh, new Democrats to to power that city council, right? She's inheriting the same city council that John Tory had. Um, so she's going to have to work with those people. Uh, she has pledged not to use the strong mayor powers that the province bestowed upon John Tory. Um, even before the province gave the mayor of Toronto those powers, uh, I should say the mayor of Toronto and Ottawa, the mayor of Toronto already had some pretty substantial procedural powers uh, that actually date back to 2007 and David Miller. She can, for example, name the chairs of committees and without going back on her word, if I could put it that way, Mm -hmm. um, she will have uh, some of those uh, uh, powers that she can draw upon, that she can shape her agenda, shape council a little bit. It's going to be interesting to see how, in particular, Chow works with some of the newer Members of council. I, there is a younger generation, if I can put it that way, of progressives who currently sit uh, on Toronto City Council. Chow, and uh, we have already mentioned her age, and I, and I don't want to make this about her age specifically, but she has just she's been in elected politics for a long time. She represents um, a. Again, I, there's there's no better word for it, but she represents an older generation of progressive politician, um, and so it'll be interesting to see how uh, she works together. These 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 different generations have different attitudes towards things like housing policy.
1: I thought this was a youth movement. The previous mayor was 69. Olivia Chow, 66, this is a, a, a new generation of Relatively politics, isn't it? sprightly. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Well, as we suggested, Premier Ford hasn't exactly been discreet about who he was supporting in this campaign. Uh, he said at the beginning of the campaign he was going to stay out of it, and then he came out for Mark Saunders and put Saunders' sign on his lawn. Um, well, and then there was ex-Mayor John Tory, who also said he was probably going to stay out of this campaign, and then in the dying days publicly endorsed Anna Lau. That candidate is the best choice. To lead the city forward and to bring it together every day, as I tried so hard to do, and as you have to do. Her name is Anna Bylow. Tell me, John Michael,
0: <laughs> did did we expect that to take place? Ah. Uh, uh... What is it they say, making (laughs) predictions is hard, especially about the future? Uh, Yes, our our listeners may remember that just last week, I predicted (laughs) that uh, since Jennifer McKelvey, the deputy mayor, was making her endorsement, that that was a sign that John Tory would not uh, make an endorsement. So I I think this does mean that... This is the closest we are going to get to the ex-mayor waiting into the race to succeed. him. Yeah, uh, I
1: blew that call, I guess. Hey, listen, you're you're not out there by yourself, buddy. I, I think I said right after you, I'd be 99 percent guaranteed sure John Tory was going to stay on the sidelines during this campaign. And he did not. He came in there at the 11th hour. He did a video for her. Uh, for Bailao. He did some uh, robocalls for Bailao. Yep. And yet, uh, while it helped ensure that she came second, she's still, uh, what, 34,000 votes behind. So didn't exactly
0: close the gap. No, didn't exactly. But again, I I think I just really want to emphasize that how um, interesting, and, and I'm just going to try and use the neutral term interesting it is to me, because John Tory Doug Ford, both uh, prominent Toronto conservative politicians. They both made endorsements in the dying days of this campaign. And one of those endorsements mattered, and one of them did not matter at all. And it is fascinating to me that it was John Torres that mattered. Because I would think if you are a conservative leaning person in Toronto that Doug Ford would be the more prominent like he he would be the standard bearer in my brain. Now maybe I've just got Queen's Park brain, right? And <laughs> like that's a thing that happens. Um, but I, I I genuinely find it fascinating that John Tory's endorsement mattered and Doug Ford's basically did not. let's um let's make one more point, and that is that for about
1: 35 years in public life, Olivia Chow has, in effect, been playing second banana. First of all, to Jack Layton, the former leader of the NDP, and her husband, and now, if I can put it this way—and I mean this only with respect—in some respects to the ghost of Jack Layton. Many people on the campaign trail have pointed out that Olivia Chow simply never had the political skills that Jack Layton had, and I can only imagine that he is smiling down upon her in heaven tonight, as uh, as he sees a victory that Olivia Chow won fair and square. Using whatever talents she has accumulated over the last 30 years, including being representative of a whole new um, type of Torontonian, somebody who wasn't born here and didn't grow up at the family compact, uh, somebody who came over here as a kid uh, to uh, the new country of Canada and has made a name for herself. And
0: I know Jack Layton would be bloody proud of her tonight. That's for damn sure. Absolutely. And, you know, it is. Uh, Politics isn't fair. History isn't fair. And uh, it, it, frankly, it it might have been unfair if Olivia Chow uh, had served out the rest of her life, uh, never getting to be the main character in her own autobiography. And now, at least for the next three years, she is going to get that shot and uh, we will see what she makes of it. On to issue two. Okay, let's get to the mailbag. We enjoy getting your feedback at at TVO.org And, JMM, what have we got this week? Uh, we've got a bunch of letters, so uh, let's get to them one by one. Here's one from listener Greg, who writes, The Canadian forest fires got me wondering if there could be grounds for one jurisdiction to sue another for damages. For example, could New York State sue Quebec claiming damages as a result of poor forest management or a slower, insufficient response to a forest fire? Thanks, Greg. Hmm, intriguing. Well, you have- have actually had to research environmental laws because,
1: well, the Ford government keeps ending up in court over things such as climate change and other environmental issues, so do we have an answer for Greg's question?
0: Well, anyone can sue anyone for anything. The question Greg is asking is, would this get laughed out of court? Uh, And while I remind our listeners once again that I am not a lawyer, uh, I'm skeptical here. Uh, Let's start with the fact that there are, as I understand it, uh, pretty narrow grounds for Americans to sue other sovereign governments. And uh, the exceptions that exist, like international terrorism, really don't seem to apply here. But let's go further for a second. Could Canada and the U.S. sign a treaty that gave people standing to sue over cross-border air pollution? setting aside for the moment why the federal government would ever actually want to sign a treaty like that, here you have another problem that the Canadian Supreme Court has held that the federal government's treaty-making power can't be used to infringe on the jurisdiction of the provinces. Uh, You don't want the feds to be able to concoct a treaty whose terms allow Ottawa to dictate conditions that nullify the the whole federal structure of the constitution. Uh, This actually came up when the feds were negotiating the uh, free trade agreement with the European Union because the uh, europeans had gotten quite frustrated at the fact that they thought they were signing a deal with the national government and it turned out that the provinces had all sorts of procedural rights that uh, got in the way of it so actually when they were negotiating that treaty the federal government did the work of making sure to get the provinces on board so for the purposes of this question you know you would actually need to get the provinces to agree to, in effect, allow themselves to be sued by foreign citizens over their forestry management practices, which doesn't seem very likely to me. Hmm. So no lawsuits over wildfire air pollution in our future? Probably not. But one issue I do want to put on our listeners' radars, and it's kind of related, uh, since we are talking about climate liability, is the notion of suing fossil fuel companies for climate pollution. Here, the argument is different. There is a substantial documentary uh, uh, record that fossil fuel companies knew the science of climate change, often better than the government did, decades before it was common knowledge, and they spent huge sums of money trying to derail climate policy. Uh, Environmental groups have tried to bring this to court as effectively a kind of fraud, not unlike Big Tobacco's fraud cases in the 1990s. Uh, And earlier this year, the NDP at Queen's Park introduced a private member's bill that would give people standing to sue fossil fuel producers. Now, obviously, that bill is not likely to go anywhere with the current makeup of the legislature, but it's definitely one area that climate activists are working on.
1: Great. Okay, Greg, hope that helps. Here is now another letter, this one from Andrew, who writes, Dear Steve and John Michael, in the Mail Call segment on one of your recent episodes, JM mentioned Ontario owes debts going back to 1867, which prompted me to wonder if Ontario had assumed any debts that predate Confederation. The British Crown paid off South Sea bubble and Napoleonic war debt, a mostly symbolic gesture in 2014, so some obligations can be very long-lived. Sincerely, Andrew. Like this one.
0: Uh, Yeah, no, I I like this one. Uh... This, it turns out, is another constitutional question. The British North America Act, what we now call the the Constitution Act of 1867, says that the Dominion government, what we now commonly call the federal government, uh, assumes all the public debts of the provinces that were joining in 1867. Remember that the provinces of Ontario and Quebec were created out of the old single province of Canada. That province had debts. And part of the Bargain of Confederation was that the new Dominion government was going to get most of the important taxing powers. So in exchange, it was going to lift the debt burdens off of the provinces who were joining. But it wasn't a blank check either. Section 112 of the BNA says that the provinces of Ontario and Quebec would be liable for any debt above and beyond 62,500,000 Canadian dollars of the day. (laughs) Uh, And the Dominion would get to charge them a 5% interest. So, of course, because it's Canadian politics, there's a dispute between these brand new provinces and the federal government over exactly how much debt they would end up responsible for, how it would be paid for. And of course, it ends up being litigated for years. It it does, in fact, go to the Supreme Court of Canada. But before that, in the 1870s, the federal parliament essentially increases the level of the debts it was willing to take over from Ontario and Quebec to uh, over $73 million and change instead of the the constitutionally set $62 million. Uh, I could go on for a bit more about this, but I won't. <laughs> I already have. Uh, simply to say, Andrew's question was, did Ontario assume any debts that predated Confederation? Uh, and the answer is, uh, at least a little, yeah. Uh, I, I couldn't, before we had to start recording, I couldn't confirm whether we are still paying any of those debts down, which was another part of Andrew's question. Um, maybe we'll have to get that in September. I think it's hilarious that you had any clue about the answer to this question without having to <laughs> <laughs> look it up so good for you anyway well done here's an email from listener Tomek who writes love your podcast thank you very much since you mentioned both bonnie crombie and a number of ontario political dynasties in one episode maybe you would find it worth your and your listeners time to talk about crombies in ontario and toronto politics were they related how politically similar were they thank you again Tomek." Okay. The two most famous Crombies in public life are, of course,
1: David, who was the mayor of Toronto from 1972 to 78, and then a federal cabinet minister in Brian Mulroney's government. And Bonnie, who's a former MP, current mayor of Mississauga, and also an Ontario Liberal leadership candidate at the moment. Now, they do have a lot in common. Both mayors. Both won three elections as mayors. Both members of parliament. Although Bonnie was only in opposition while David got into the Mulroney cabinet. As to whether they're related, the answer is probably distantly. But having asked them both about this, neither one knows for sure, and they don't know how. The suspicion is that they're from the same clan back in the old country. And of course, we should establish here that the connection would only be through Bonnie's former husband. That's how she came to be known as Bonnie Crombie. She was actually born Bonnie Stack and identifies ethnically as Polish, which is her mother's background.
0: As a McGrath, I can only say that I, too, know the pain of having a surname that lots of other people have. (laughs) Uh, For many years, people asked if I was related to one of the writers on The Simpsons. And what's the answer? Uh, No, no, I am not. Oh, you wish you were. Yeah. Let's do one more, shall we?
1: Here we go. My name is Mo, and I am a big fan of the podcast. With so many mayors in Ontario getting strong mayoral power, how do you think this will affect the election going forward? Love the podcast. Go Tie Cats. Hey, love the TICAD reference, Mo. That's really good,
0: even though our team is off to a horrible start this year. Uh, okay. you want to take a kick at this? You know, there are two elections that this could influence. Of course, we have a provincial election in 2026 and another round of municipal elections later that year. Um, In terms of how it may affect municipal elections going forward, I think one of the things that strong mayor powers do is really focus a lot more attention on mayors as opposed to other members of city council. Council, right? It's going to make mayors answer for decisions at council. I think much more directly than they have in the past. Even here in Toronto, it was very common for mayors to used to be able to say, "Well, you know, I tried to do things, but the you know council tied my hands." Or if you were watching council, you could see mayors lose votes, and you know the world went on. And and but mayors always enjoyed a little bit of ambiguity there. Now that ambiguity is going to be substantially reduced. I would say. Mm-hmm. Unless, unless
1: Doug Ford takes back the strong mayor powers that he has given the new mayor of Toronto. We shall see.
0: Yes, uh, that is entirely possible. It's
1: not. A, it's not completely out of you know out of the realm of possibility, right? I mean, he gave them the strong mayor powers to begin with. No reason why he couldn't take them back if he doesn't like the mayor. Who's going to exercise them?
0: Well, or I mean, if he doesn't believe that the mayor exercising them is going to use them in a way that will lead to the uh, housing policy that the pr- province wants, right? The, the whole justification for the strong mayor powers was supposed to be that it was going to get more homes built faster. If Doug. Ford concludes that Olivia Chow is not going to use those powers to get more homes built faster, he could take them away. Should I be cynical here and add the whole justification
1: for giving those powers in the first place was on the assumption that a conservative mayor would be exercising them? Well,
0: indeed, yes. (laughs) That's saying the quiet part loud. (laughs) Again, if you'd like to ask us about content on the show, please feel free to email us at onpolitics at tvo.org. Well, you have waited, you
1: have liked, you have reviewed, and you have sent us emails, and now we are going to do our draw for a signed copy of my book on former Prime Minister John Turner. JMM, are you ready? I am as ready as I'll ever be. I Steve. bet you are, <laughs> uh, Matthew, in the other room. You want to give us a drum roll, please. JMM, please reach into the bowl and pluck out a name of the lucky
0: person who's going to get this new book. All right, congratulations. Simon L., who is not a brother-in-law or anything of yours, right? (laughs) To the best of my knowledge, I am not related to anybody named Simon. Congratulations. You have just won a signed copy of John Turner, an intimate biography of Canada's 17th Prime Minister, uh, written by some guy named Pakin. Mm. Uh, I'm not really familiar with his work, but I hear he's not bad. <laughs> uh, our producer will reach out to you for your mailing address. Uh, a big thank you to everyone who sent in a rating or review for this contest. You have helped put our little podcast uh, on more people's radar screens, and we are grateful. Thank you, Simon, and good luck. I hope you enjoy
1: the book. And that is the On Poly podcast for Tuesday, June 27th, 2023. Please remember to check out our newsletters. You can subscribe at tvo.org slash newsletters. This week, JMM and I have more to say about the historic Toronto mayor's
0: race. Also, make sure to follow our show on Apple Podcasts so that you get notified each time a new episode is available. And if you already follow our show, help a friend follow the show, too. Any feedback you have, we're happy to hear it. Good, bad, or indifferent. Do you know where that line comes from, right? Good, bad, or
1: indifferent? That was John Turner's line. Oh <laughs> Whenever they asked him about polls, Mr. Turner, what do you think of the new polls? he always say, I never comment on polls. Good, bad, or indifferent. So I stole the line and use it here as an homage to him. Very anyway, nice. uh, Write us good, bad, or
0: indifferent, uh, at uh, onpolitics at tvo.org. This week's episode was produced and edited by Matthew O'Mara. Our managing editor is Shahyar Tejvidi. Production support from Carla
1: Lucchetta and Jonathan Hallowell. And as mentioned, we're going to take a bit of a summer break, but we'll be back before you know it. So enjoy Canada Day this Saturday as our country celebrates its
0: 156th birthday. And until next time, bye-bye. Happy Canada Day, everyone. And in case you don't hear from us, happy Simcoe Day and happy Labor Day, too. <laughs>